Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I hope that you're having a great day. It's your host, Eric, soon to be joined by my awesome co-host, Dr. Kenneth Brown. And we got a great show today. So microdosing and psilocybin. And what does it mean to have Mother Nature's analogs for serotonin mimics? That's right. We are talking about brain health. We've hit on it before. But let's talk about microdosing. What does it mean? Just tiny dosing? Is there... Is there actually a strategy? Is there a goal in mind? Turns out there is. There's a reason why you have institutions like the Hefter Institute, Johns Hopkins, Texas Tech University Medical Center, um, New York University, Harvard Medical, all dipping their toe in the water to find out what it is that Mother Nature can provide in terms of delivering good, solid brain support for people who may suffer from depression or they may suffer from addiction. Believe it or not, there is a method here. And much like any other method or pharmaceutical or therapy that's ever existed, it was all experimental in the front end. So let's embrace the knowledge that we gain and find out how we can responsibly apply it. And I think that you'll find this episode rather informative because uh, my awesome co-host, Dr. Ken's got some some great studies that, uh, that just keep pouring out. That being said, let's get to the sponsors so we can get to the show. Number one. Atron Teal, get your daily polyphenols. I've said it multiple times. Go to lovemytummy.com. That's lovemytummy.com. Anyone can benefit from a daily dose of polyphenols. Doesn't matter if you're an athlete, if you got gut issues, if you just want better sleep, if you want to make certain that you don't have inflammation, you need polyphenols. They provide so many postbiotics that the bacteria in your gut break down and turn into useful products throughout your body. Get your daily polyphenols today. That's lovemytummy.com. Stop the bloating. Lovemytummy.com. And of course, new, new sponsor, Brain FM. That's brain.fm, not .com. Brain.fm. What is Brain FM? Brain FM is an awesome sound. Yeah, that's right. You may wonder, well, what do you mean by sound? Well, if you've ever, ever struggled in your life which is going to be everybody, just with focus, um, an issue of, I would just want to meditate better. If you've ever found yourself having trouble falling to sleep or going back to sleep, believe it or not, Brain FM has got a really, really cool uh, bit of software that you can download to your phone. You can use it with headphones. You can just play it through a Bluetooth speaker. It does not matter. We're actually doing a clinical trial with them at the GI Center because it's going to help patients decrease anxiety. We believe. We'll find out. We'll get the, the results back. We're going to prove it in a medical um, in a medical setting. But that being said, go to brain.fm. Better yet, try it free. That's right, free for 30 days. Try it free for 30 days and see what it can do for you. While you're trying to hammer out paperwork, answer email, get through paying bills, do your taxes. Um, you just want to focus hard on, on, on shed work outside. Whatever it happens to be, you could use focus. You're having difficulty, you wake up in the middle of the night, you want to sleep better. You can use the Deep Sleep app, and I've used it. It stinking works. So brain.fm slash redeem, that's R-E-D-E-E-M slash G-C-P for Gut Check Project. So that's brain.fm slash redeem slash G-C-P free for 30 days. No questions asked. If it isn't for you, don't sign up. But if it is for you, 
for a very, very low cost. It's free to you, or not free to you, but it's a subscription to you on your phone whenever you need it. That's brain.fm. Try Brain FM out free on us today. And of course, Unrefined Bakery, awesome food. We got Christmas coming up. You gluten-free, you keto, you just want to have great tasting desserts that won't be toxic to your body? That's right. That's what Unrefined Bakery's for. Unrefinedbakery.com. Use code GUTCHECK online and save 20% off your entire first order. Christmas, just around the corner, New Year's, whatever you got coming up. Here we go. So now, last but not least, go to kbmdhealth.com, kbmdhealth.com. We are revamping the website. And uh, we got some new stuff coming out. But that being said, of course, you can go and check out Dr. Kenneth Brown's own personal CBD. You can check out his signature packages, which include Atron Teal CBD, as well as sulforaphanes from Broccolite. Go to kbmdhealth.com. And without further ado, let's hit up episode number 66. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. We certainly hope you have a great day. I am Eric Rieger, joined here by my awesome co-host, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's shaking? Not much. This is episode 66. It so is what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about mushrooms, again, from a different angle. Different we love angle. We, We're learning so much about mushrooms. We're having so much fun with it. Uh, we're going to talk about depression today, honestly. Correct. Uh, it's not going to be a depressing episode. What we're going to do is bring some hope for this because there is some new data to show that if you're suffering from depression, maybe you just don't have to run to the doctor and get put on all these weird drugs because there's some new evidence to show that uh, different foods, mushroom extracts can help with that. We'll get into all that. No, it's super interesting. Um, we live in a day and time where it seems like that even though there happen to be pharmaceutical solutions, not that they all can't work to some capacity, but people become they become skeptical. Like, am am I being oversold a disease state just so it fits the motif or the the supposed delivery system or the therapeutic that uh, that they're hawking towards me? So it's always good, I think, whenever you can discover that Mother Nature already had a way, and maybe we. Maybe we can find avenues to to return to that. I mean, I think that that's the whole premise of KBMD Health, the whole premise of KBS Research with Altron Teal. Definitely. Is that there are options beside that. I was telling you that I was working at the hospital yesterday, and there was a, a nurse, very young nurse, walking around. And she was getting up, and her she was like clearly in pain. And I'm like, are you okay? And she goes, I just have this tingling sensation in my feet, and my feet kill. And I'm like, when did this start? She's like, about three months ago. And I'm like, did you see a doctor? She goes, yeah. She put me on this medication that really kind of messes with my sleep, and I got restless leg, and I'm like, well... Did they check anything? Did they check? And she's like, no. She said to try this and see if it helped. I'm like, okay, this is the exact thing that we're trying to get away from. And I understand that every doctor is busy, and maybe it was a situation, well, maybe I can help you right now, and then I'll be able to take time to do this later. This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. If you go to somebody and you say, well, I'm sad and they say here take xyz ssri or you know a serotonin reuptake inhibitor all the medicines that you see it seems like those medications the medications for pain the medications for chronic disease and the medications for depression are the ones you see commercials for all the time definitely it's 
one of those deals where I remember listening to a comedian where he was talking, he goes, every time I see an antidepressive commercial, it's like, oh my gosh, they get, once you're on this drug, you get to like walk around fields and like hang out with your spouse and ride a bike with your kid because that's what you do apparently when you do that. But the reality is they don't ever talk about the side effects that they kind of briefly gloss over in the end, which is weight gain, sexual dysfunction, uh, possibly increased depression, which is why there's an increased suicidal risk when you start all these things. It's all these things that just doesn't get talked about in mainstream. Well, it doesn't. And uh, there isn't. We, we can't just look at things as a one size fits all approach because it's, well, that's just not normal. Okay, think of it this way. If you were to go to a therapist's office and they were to have their entire practice of everybody who suffered from depression and they were all to show up at the same time and sit in the office, okay? Do you think that they all would be wearing the same brand, same sized shoes? It's, they're, they're, they're all there, males and females. Everybody just suddenly shows up that way. Of course they're not. There's different size feet. There are people who are wearing tennis shoes. There are people who are wearing flip-flops. There are ultimately different things that someone chose to wear that day as their foot protectant to get around. And the same idea could be applied to how do we handle someone's depression? Not everyone has the same origin on what is causing their depression. So it's kind of sucks that that's what the approach was for someone to just try this medicine. Yeah, well, not only does it suck. So if you're somebody who has suffered from some depression, and let's just say any chronic disease out there, if you're somebody who has um, hypertension, most common thing out there, silent killer, yeah. and you're on all these medications. Well, something that nobody's talking about is that when these drugs are developed, when they go through the FDA, they go through phase one, phase two, phase three trials, mm -hmm. they are done in a cohort of people, meaning they start out in phase one with people that are willing to volunteer to try a drug, and then they check blood levels. That does not account for gastric emptying, digestion, absorption. Once it's absorbed, what are your enzymes like? Today, I mean, frequently, you put patients to sleep, or we look, and they some patients will, you give them, you just wave the drug under their nose, and they're out like a light. Other people are having full-on conversations with bottles of it. You mean like our last patient today? Like, like our patient today, <laughs> which was wonderful because it's it just it, it documented exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. As an and as an anesthesia provider, you don't look at somebody and go give that person exactly two hundred milligrams, no. and we will be done. Everybody is different, and we don't treat pharmaceuticals like that. Yeah, people come in and they say, "I'm very depressed. I have uh, suicidal ideation. I'm whatever situational depression. It could be anything. It could be a chronic thing. If it's chronic, what is the deal? Do you have perpetually decreased serotonin and dopamine? Nobody's having these conversations. So when I see these three articles that just came out this month discussing this particular topic. I'm like, well, we got to do a podcast on it. We got to talk about how, once again, Mother Nature has some things that may help you. So even if you're somebody that's going to your doctor and they're putting you on these different medications, you have the opportunity to say, I'm going to try and augment my life a little bit through a natural way where it may actually correct me and maybe I don't have to put up with the side effects of going on. Always listen to your doctor, once again, on this podcast, uh, I am a healthcare provider. Eric is a healthcare provider, but we are not your healthcare provider unless we are, and we'll do that in private. <laughs> uh, not but, through here. But not through here. So always discuss that. Any, any advice we give, discuss with your doctor. But this is an example because 
as a gastroenterologist, the gut-brain access is so prevalent that if I get a lot of people that once we fix their digestive issues, their depression gets better, their anxiety gets better, there's, they're able to sleep better, and it, because it goes hand in hand. Yeah, so it definitely does. I mean, it's, it's sleep apnea. You have people who end up developing ultimately um, high body weight and then possibly coronary vessel disease. And suddenly someone ends up having heart issues and they don't understand that it actually started from a routine interruption of their sleep, which elevated cortisol because it was a fight or flight instance. And it just goes on and on and snowballs into a completely different issue when it could have been addressed rather than getting a stent. Oh, yeah. So what I tell my patients if somebody comes in and they're like, yeah, this happened i had this traumatic event this led to chronic pain this led to me not sleeping well then mm -hmm. suddenly i became very depressed i can just stop right there and go look your cortisol levels yeah. your cortisol levels are affecting your anandamide mm -hmm. and your 2ag which is the endocannabinoid system so we know that that's there oh also your cortisol levels are actually the seesaw of norepinephrine and serotonin and dopamine so you can make somebody sleep deprived through a million different reasons and you're going to end up depressed. Yes. You and will. then you will, once that's happening, then you start doing some, we, we're going to get into all of this. You start having an effect on your executive function. Your executive function is that decision-making process that prevents you from um, drinking alcohol, doing drugs, doing uh, engaging in activities that probably are not perfect for you, eating bad foods, doing all that stuff. All of that has been linked to these neurotransmitters. So I'm not trying to sit there and say that everything is out of your control, but there's so many things that you can allow your body to just give it what it needs, let your body figure out what to do, and you will be better out, better off because of it. Could not agree more. So we're going to get into all that today. So I think it's really cool. It's not going to be a heavy episode. I think it's actually absolutely fascinating. It's cool. But anyways, before we do that, okay. what's going on with you, man? Eric Rieger, what's going on in the Rieger house? Wow. Well, so uh, full swing in basketball. Mac is in his senior year in basketball. Gage is finishing up finals at Texas Tech. And speaking of, just yesterday, Mac made it official that that is where he's going to go to school. Another Red Raider in the house. Another Love one. it. And he, he's really excited. And the great thing, honestly, is that, uh, that Marie and I both are just thrilled about is that Mac and Gage are beyond brothers. They're really, really good friends. So they're both excited. And frankly, that's that's enough excitement for us. Everyone's super, super happy. So uh, that, uh, that that he's happy with his future, and that's where we're gonna go. That's awesome. And yourself? Uh, so Lucas and Lloyda we took a little uh, two week stint down to Florida, where they had some of the biggest national tournaments of the year. Mm -hmm. Eddie, her, and Orange Bowl. Uh, it was uh, you know, not quite the successful year that Lucas had the year before, mm -hmm. but he's playing up in age. This is a big thing. It's uh, it's tough. It's uh, the competition keeps getting more and more. But we're proud of we're we're proud of him. Whatever he does, Absolutely. and then Carl and I had a fantastic weekend because we went to um, the first time that I've been to a tournament where it was a doubles tournament where they had mixed doubles. So I get to see my my freshman uh, girl play with uh, another freshman boy and they just had fun and it's just cool and I'm just like, you know, this is what it's about. One of the things that 
when I'm looking at this, when we talk about your boys playing basketball, engaged, you know, played at a you know really high level and everything, and he looked you square in the eye and said, "I don't want to play college basketball. Yeah, I want to have fun in college." Yeah. And he's having a great time. And and Max, a real good basketball player, also, but he also realizes that he wants to do this. I had a conversation with Heather, of the CRNA that we work with, and she was an ultra competitive figure skater. And like at the highest level and then ended up, you know, not quite at Olympics, but really close to that. Mm -hmm. And I asked her now she's a successful CRNA. Mm -hmm. She's married. She has kids. She's super happy. Her dad works with us. Mm -hmm. So I get to hear his perspective of what he did to get her to go. And I was like, Heather, what would you do it again? She goes, absolutely. But I wish I would have known that at my age now I'd be a successful healthcare provider, CRNA, a mother happily married and I could have enjoyed all that so much more because when you're in it you yeah. think that's it you think that's the the beginning and the end of existence whether or not this performance works and that is maturity that's I guess what we would all love to say I guess all of us would love to say oh it would have been so much more fun had I known that I'd be here but some of the anxiety and the drive to be perfect at the particular aspect of your life then mm -hmm. is probably what makes you really good at what you do now. Interesting. I mean, maybe something we should do for another topic because that's that's pretty fascinating. Heather would word it like that, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, I was never in danger of being a D1 athlete for really much of anything. So I enjoyed <laughs> golf and football when I played it. Uh, but uh, in a completely different end of the spectrum, there was a study, and I can't remember how long ago it was, but they asked, they were, they were, it had to do with performance enhancing drugs, and it was uh, Olympic athletes. And it asked them. Oh, it was Icarus, the movie. That yeah, it was, it was, the, it was That's, yeah, right. That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, yeah. And they talked about would you trade in a much shorter life, like almost immediate, uh, for the gold. And the percentage of people who said that, yes, I would trade in longevity and health for winning a, a gold in the Olympics, I was kind of blown away. But what they what they were doing is exactly what Heather didn't want to do, and that was defining their life's worth through an activity. And they they have so much invested in just winning. It's I was talking to one of the parents and I was saying, but you forget the win loss. What these children are learning about preparing, about working hard, about driving, about winning, about losing, yeah. about dealing with both, about moving on, it, about yes. conflict moving resolution, on. all of it. And so when I was talking to Heather's dad, Larry, he was saying, oh my gosh, it was so tough because as a parent, and I know this, you know this, as a parent, watching your child lose, be upset, and really all they need to do is vent. Yeah. But really what you want to do is correct the problem. You yeah. want to do something. You want to help. You want to help. And he was like, he goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There was times where uh, uh, Heather would lose um, a, in a custom outfit, and mm -hmm. she's like, get rid of this outfit. I can never wear this again. I will be the person that fell. I'm the pink dress girl that fell. I'll be known that. And I'm like, wow. All of that is exactly what any – child that takes something to the next level and then you start thinking it doesn't it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter if it's you know track and field or anything when you go to that point and imagine being an olympian and you have you've worked four years to do one thing to jump over a bar to throw a javelin to figure skate to do whatever 
And it comes down to that. And that is defining you as a person. Oh my goodness. That's the hardest thing. What defines you as the person is the work ethic to get there. What defines you as a person is the person that uh, makes sure that they sacrifice. They don't stay out partying with their friends. They don't do everything. They come there. And that is the thing that is so impressive. Anybody that can do that is sure. capable of tremendous success. A hundred percent. And then they lose, you're right. They lose sight and they're only, and, and they are unique. I mean, what's unique is elite athletes who get there. They, they've, they've become that in part because they can focus that much on there, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to lose sight of the other things that make you up as a human because you could be the most polite athlete uh, to the people who keep the facility open. Well, that's actually an admirable trait. You've you've made people feel better in your exchanges beyond being awesome. Like I mean, Heather is one of the most pleasant people to work with. So beyond being an honest, I mean, an, an awesome skater, she's also just a great person. Yeah. So it's it's almost the inverse that someone who's a high achiever needs to remember that someone probably views them as a great person who just happens to be good at basketball or ski or skating or tennis or whatever it happens to be. It's not, Oh, what a great tennis player. And yeah. They're also a pretty good person too. Yeah. It's really the opposite, but yeah. it's hard. You can lose sight of that. If you, if that's all your focus is. Yeah. I do not know how we went down this pathway so quick. Um, I was, so gonna, I was going to try episode open is, a little lighter than that. Yeah. that was, now we're getting all philosophical about sports and, all that, which is awesome because it's cool because kids. mushrooms led to this discussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, mushrooms probably led to this news article that I saw today, Uh-oh. which you might get a kick out of. Okay. All right. So out of England in Gloucester, England, a bomb disposal team was called to an English hospital when a man arrived with an unexploded World War II mortar stuck in his rectum. As it turns out, according to the paper, the patient was a military enthusiast and he was cleaning and unfortunately slipped and fell and a World War II mortar was uh, somehow found its way into his rectum. It happens. Yeah, it happens. And he had to go to the emergency room before the emergency room could do anything about it. They had to call a whole bomb team in and they had to make sure that they secured the area and then they were able to successfully remove it and he was unharmed. But you know, it could have been an explosive situation. Could have been very explosive. And it completely reminded me of two years ago when you and I were working (laughs) and we had that emergency case where that unfortunate gentleman had slipped and fell on his gerbil And then we got called in to emergently remove that. And the thing that when we're talking about character, we're talking about character about these athletes and we're talking about all this, you know, what we did, um, you know, my job was easy. But what was amazing with you is that when we removed that gerbil, you spent the next hour resuscitating it. And I'm like, Eric, the gerbil's gone. You're like, no. And you did all the anesthesia stuff that you do and you're able to resuscitate the gerbil. And so when I saw that, I was like, ah, that was a mortar. But, you know, that and then that 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 gerbil and its family still visit you once a year, Mm -hmm. I guess, around Thanksgiving. I okay. so I think my takeaway is, number one, I'm really glad that you remember all the good things that I did in that scenario. I do not know what the hell you're talking about. 
Are you serious? Yeah, I'm pretty That serious. seems like something you should remember. I, I mean, it was a guy I that mean, came in. It was an emergency. It was a gerbil. It's in his rectum. Like we got it out. You, you resuscitated it for like an hour. You saved its life. Yeah. It, you, wow. Yeah. I don't know that I remember Do that. Do you remember the name of the gerbil or any of it? Is any of this ringing a bell? Seems like you're really confused right now. I, I don't think I am confused. I'm I'm facilitating dementia or something here. I'm not really sure. So going. I was a little bit scared about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to. Can I get you a Viagra? I don't need that. I think you kind of do. <laughs> because I'm a little bit worried about your memory. That's a really important story, and I would like to get you a Viagra because um, a study just came out. Um, two days ago, as oh. a matter of fact, okay, where it showed that a study finds that Viagra use could reduce Alzheimer's by 70%. And I would hate to see you slipping into Alzheimer's, not remembering such a dramatic story of resuscitating the gerbil. His name was Hamilton, by the way. You named him Hamilton. None of it. Doesn't I, ring a bell. No, I'm okay. certain it doesn't. <laughs> okay, well, that never happened, but I just wanted to Thank prove goodness. a point that <laughs> if you had not remembered that, I would yeah. get you a Viagra. And this is actually true. So a study was just published out of the out of the Cleveland Clinic, no uh, less. Okay. Nice. Out of the Cleveland Clinic. This is actually kind of cool. What's up, uh, Mark? Yeah. Uh, Mark Cahoots, look at a sense for that. They uh we're gonna when, when are we having him on? I think early part of 2022. This is CEO of a cool company where they've shown that um, certain scents can create certain emotions, much like our Brain FM. Certain neurophase locking can do that. But anyways, so this study, uh, I was uh, Eric rightly should not remember that. That was a completely made up story <laughs> that I just did right there, just to lead into another story. I apologize. It's okay. No <laughs> one's shocked anymore. All right. So a study just came out of the Cleveland Clinic where it looked at that Viagra um, essentially. Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia is, is an ep epidemic. It impacts almost 14 million Americans. Um, well, they anticipated affecting 14 million Americans by 2050, actually. And what they're looking at is everybody's trying to figure out how to fix this. How do we do it? Now, we talk about dementia and brain health all the time with polyphenols. But in the case of Alzheimer's disease, what they wanted to look at is that two proteins seem to actually cause this. Okay. And that's the beta amyloid and the tau proteins. They seem to accumulate. The two proteins work together to damage your brain and affect your memory. So they were looking at all these other compounds. They were looking at tons of different compounds, trying to figure out what is the next drug that we could do. Mm -hmm. And to their surprise, sildenafil, otherwise known as Viagra, turned up to have the best scores in helping Alzheimer's dementia. So what they did is they looked at people that had taken a bunch of different drugs, Losartan, Metformin, all these other drugs that people thought it would work. And after six years of follow-up, they saw that those that were taking Viagra on a regular basis had a 70% decrease in Alzheimer's dementia. Then they said, okay, well, let's look at this and figure out why. So they concluded that Viagra reduced the likelihood of Alzheimer's because it actually affected the increased blood flow, nitric oxide, we've done that before, yeah. and decreased the amount of tau proteins and the beta amyloid proteins. Okay. And so basically, though, this is, ba this is keeping those channels clear, right? So uh, by, uh, what I'm saying is... is uh, Viagra being a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, correct, uh, has that we're not uh, we're not talking about uh, an activity directly on those proteins, are we? Or is this something where we are blocking phosphodiesterase 
So, uh, um, essentially, they said that we believe that they believe that the increased blood flow, the uh-huh. nitric oxide dilation, increased the blood flow. What that did do is that led to a decrease in the hyperphosphorylation of the tau proteins. So it affected uh-huh. the tau protein specifically. Now, if we were to look at this in a different way, we know that sleep is super important. The lymphatic system. Mm-hmm. The glial lymphatic system removes those proteins. So the more blood flow you get to the brain, the more that it can flush these proteins out. Mm-hmm. So they actually showed that people that took Viagra actually had less issues. And their belief is it's not going to stop there. They believe that this will help with all neurodegenerative diseases, including Parkinson's, ALS, things like that, which is a really interesting aspect because they concluded that it was essentially the vasodilation and the blood flow that allowed the body to do its thing. Yeah. So if we can do this naturally, once again, nitric oxide, uh, decreasing neuroinflammation, we come back to the same thing over and over and over, which is inflammation. So I just thought it was kind of funny. I, I don't know. Uh, it was a lead in to sit there and say, let me get you a Viagra. I, don't, I, I have not, <laughs> I've never said that to you before. <laughs> no, no, you haven't. And if we didn't have microphones in front, I think we'd just end the conversation. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, that, that is interesting. Um, I'm curious, though. I mean, so some precursors to nitric oxide would be something that would be non-pharmacological that we could consider to do that, as well as having good sleep, et cetera, but uh, L-arginine and different things like that. Absolutely. L-arginine, uh, the polyphenols that we've discussed before, we've talked about nitric oxide synthase inhibitors, yeah. enos inhibitors. We did a whole episode of nitric oxide, but you can we, we can keep seeing the same thing over and over. This isn't like the drug is specifically doing this. What they saw is a vasodilator. Remember that Viagra actually initially started as a blood pressure medication. Yeah. It was the, the side effect. It right? was the side effect of helping erectile dysfunction, which helped um, launch Pfizer into the company it is today. Yeah. A little too big personally but probably you know well. it is what it is so um but that uh, any questions about viagra and dementia and your lack of recalling the gerbil resuscitation you did amazing though it was like an hour and a half of like you're like we won't let him go hamilton i'm not letting you go and i don't think i have any questions <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we said it's a hot week for mushrooms, and it is a very hot week because three studies were recently published, and I think they're super important because it does involve the aspect of depression mm-hmm. and addiction. So this is let's start with the first one. Okay. So we're looking at mushrooms. So if you look at our other episodes, we've done one. Uh, we did one with Mason, Dr. Mason Bressett, yeah, and we did the other one where we talked about the nutritional value of this. And so, I mean, very clearly we know that mushrooms have very potent cancer-fighting compounds, they've got anti-inflammatory compounds, and they have these other aspects that have all been studied. This particular group looked at this and said, well, let's look back and see if this actually affects depression and mood. In other words, does it have any neurologic aspect of it? And once again, this first study is not referring to magic mushrooms, not referring to psilocybin, which Johns Hopkins is publishing tons about right now. So this comes down to just eating plain old mushrooms. So researchers at Penn State University released a report in the Scientific Journal of Affected Disorders that found that people who eat mushrooms appear to have a much lower risk of depression than those who do not eat mushrooms. In other words, mushrooms may positively affect mental health. 
This wasn't a small study. They looked at 24,000 people from 2005 to 2016 to see how a mushroom-heavy diet could potentially correlate to mental health. Now, they wanted to see what these mushrooms would do or what these fungi would do because there's very clear that there are bioactive compounds in mushrooms that we have talked about. There is an association with, with reduced anxiety. Some of these um, different aspects include B12, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory agents like the beta-glucans that we've also discussed, and it has nerve growth factors. So all of these things got them thinking that maybe we should be looking at mushroom consumption to see this cohort of people, 24,000 people. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to really realize is, in particular, what types of mushrooms seem to correlate more with depression than others. And what they found is an amino acid called ergothionine seems to be helping the most. Mushrooms are the highest dietary source of this particular amino acid, ergothionine. And it is a potent antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and it cannot be synthesized by humans. So it has to be an exogenous source. Okay. So the mechanism, they didn't get into detail about this. They, it's unknown, but what they did determine is that those people that ate king mushroom or king oyster mushrooms, maitake, oyster, and shiitake varieties seem to have significantly lower depression. That's where they came up with the concept that ergothionine is highest in those varietals of mushrooms. Okay. So their conclusion was, well, this is sort of a retrospective study, but it's interesting because it's mother nature. You can eat these. We know that they're good for other things. We know that they have all the stuff that we talked about, selenium, vitamins, fiber, protein, all of that, and possibly eating a diet high in these mushrooms or taking a supplement with ergothionine Mm -hmm. may actually help with depression. So what is the ergothionine uh, used in, uh, in, in assembly? And this is a protein or amino acid, you said? It's an amino acid. So... Knowing that tryptophan is also an amino acid that needs to be consumed, uh, and that plays a, a very, very large part in the assembly of serotonin, meant to yeah, kind of explain how this fits in that that uh, that motif. Thing. They did not get into that, but that is something that we should probably look in. We should probably have somebody that's a a chemist in that aspect because okay. I bet you it plays into it. I am going to get super geeky on. The next one, okay, where we do talk about some of the mechanisms, the next article. So this particular article out of Penn State mm-hmm. just said, hmm, you know, things that make you go, hmm. Mm-hmm. People that eat these mushrooms have less depression. 24,000 people, they looked at it. It was self-reported, so they didn't get into the, sign, the chemistry of it. This next article that came out, which is really cool, does get into some serious chemistry. Let's do that. And so, that's super interesting. I would love to follow up on that. Uh, you know what? That brings up a really good point, but you're exactly right. The the precursors, the amino acid precursors that help us make these neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. I mean, what if we're sitting over there going, you need an SSRI, you need a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, when, hey, you just need a little more tryptophan. You need a little 5-HTP to make your serotonin, and then you're all good. What if you're lacking the original molecule to build it? And we're giving drugs with side effects. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, think about those who who uh, they they see issues with their eyes, like their eyes are getting too big, and they're we and they kind of become bulging. The scientific word is uh, exothalmosis, but 
they begin to panic because their eyes begin to look strange. And the truth is, they just have an issue or disruption in their thyroid. And it gets addressed, and suddenly that, that their eyes don't continue to just bulge and grow like that. So it's you, you don't always know what the root cause is of an issue. It's, it's worth understanding what the cause is versus just simply trying to find a Band-Aid style treatment. You mean if you wake up with severe foot pain and neuropathy and you go to a doctor and they put you on a drug like Lyrica, which actually causes more side effects than I, it helps? I mean, the examples are, are limitless. And I think that to some degree, especially over the last 30 years, probably, we've been probably not for better or worse, I would say for worse, been conditioned to look for the rapid response rather than the understanding and the pathway that caused an issue. And it's unfortunate, but I think that, I mean, we're in a time where I think that people are starting to look to who is the authority and why Why am I looking for the short answer? And it's actually very, very encouraging. It's a re- it really is the reason why people would even watch this show, is can we begin to put together pieces to solve better puzzles than, than just trying to walk away from it with a with an easy fix that probably is not going to solve it. I like your style. That's a great lead into the next article right. that we're going to talk about here. So we know that there's a lot of growing evidence where people, um, not people, I shouldn't even say people, um, scientists at Johns Hopkins, and they've been on Joe Rogan, and they've been on Andrew Huberman, and these you know really fantastic podcasters, where they're discussing how psilocybin, magic mushrooms, that's the molecule in magic rush, mushrooms, are helping to um, alleviate symptoms of PTSD, depression, addiction, things like that. Mm -hmm. And they usually use pretty large doses. And one of the uh, really exciting aspects is, okay, well, that's great if we can fix this one thing. This particular group that they did a study, and it was published in Neuroscience Open. It was in the Neuroscience of Psychology article. just got published November 23rd. What they wanted to determine is that psilocybin can restore a pathway in the prefrontal cortex, which reduces the risk of relapse in alcoholism. So that's kind of a fancy little lead in. But basically, they wanted to see how does this play into alcoholism? Now, you and I know that alcohol dependence is one of the most common neuropsychiatric diseases, possibly because of a lot of self-treatment, that is like self-treatment where people use alcohol to combat other aspects. Some of it is genetic. Some of it is the fact that these neuropsychiatric diseases um, has a very addictive potential. So how do you get somebody off? And not to hit on a sore subject, but Mm -hmm. I know that you've lost some friends due to alcoholism. Definitely. And they had been through treatment. They had been. They had relapses, and this. This is why this particular article was very um, dear to me because when we look at severe alcoholism, especially in relapses, the average life expectancy of those affected by alcoholism is reduced by more than twenty-two years. So, finding a key to this and finding a way to break the alcoholic cycle, specifically the alcoholic relapse could be groundbreaking. Definitely. And understanding more about dependency and addiction and the fact that I believe that most can agree that dopamine itself happens to be the the initial most powerful neurotransmitter catalyst for these types of behaviors. And so it's almost as if, and it sounds like where you're going, 
is that restructuring that response in the brain and giving the brain the opportunity to do so uh, is is essential to changing uh, undesirable habits. So that is what is known, mm-hmm. and I totally agree with you on that because we do know that dopamine plays a critical role with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what these particular researchers wanted to see is, is there another mechanism for the why do alcoholics recur? Okay. In other words, you've done everything. You've got them on the antidepressants. You've got them off the alcohol. They've withdrawn. They've done everything. And three months later, Back. they relapse. Yeah. Fascinating deal. Nobody has really understood about the causal mechanism in the brain of why recurrence actually happens. All right. And so these guys determined that there is a receptor which lies very close to the serotonin receptor, and I'll get into it in a second, called MGLUR2. MGLUR2. I've not heard of that. I know. It's wild. It is, um, it's a very novel discovery. Like The fact that they discovered this is so fascinating. Okay. They discovered that cortical MGLUR2 deficit, meaning those with alcoholism, even after they quit drinking, have a deficit of MGLUR2. Uh-huh. The deficit of MGLUR2 appears to be the pathologic molecular mechanism of this altered behavior. So if you think about it this way, mental processes, mm-hmm. you and I make decisions all day long, everybody makes decisions that control behavior, attention, and emotions, you think, which controls your behavior, your attention, and your emotions, are known globally as the executive function. Okay. The higher executive function. When people have to be put into a home when they're very older, we say that they are lacking executive function. That's a, gl- that's a gross term to say that they need assisted living. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the executive function. So in many psychiatric diseases, the ability to control one's own thoughts and actions to regulate these emotions are actually completely messed up. For example, uh, ADHD, autism, schizophrenia, borderline syndrome, and addiction all come down to this executive function. So the molecular basis of this executive function has yet to be determined, but these guys figured out in animal models that this MGLUR2, also known as metabotropic glutamate receptor 2, which is why I'm just referring it to as MGLUR2. I would do. Yeah, and eventually we'll have to rename it to something that we can... <gasps> Hamilton. Let's call him Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton the gerbil. Hamilton is next to serotonin receptors. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hamilton. I can't believe you don't remember doing a little CPR on him. It's not, ca- not going to happen. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, what it turns out is that this MGLUR2 is an antenna for glutamate, which okay. is a neurotransmitter. And so what they showed is, is that in people with a history of addiction, there is a reduced MGLUR2 in alcoholic mice. So in other words, if this is an antenna due to alcoholism and recovered alcoholism, your antenna is just much shorter. And you said it's an antenna for glutamate. For glutamate. So just as a quick review, and I believe we've mentioned it here before, but glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Correct. Meaning that it's allowing the neuron to, for whatever it's programmed to do, to uh, allow a propagation, a, a uh, an action potential. So in the brain and throughout all of your nerves, but definitely in the brain, um, glutamate and uh, GABA work opposite of each other. And if you're blocking something, you may as well just be, or if you don't have glutamate with its ability to stimulate something, 
you should view it as you're kind of shutting down the ability for, it sounds to me like your ability to have a reward center. Yes. So when they, once they realized this, what they looked and they're like, where does this Mgler 2 receptor lie? As it turns out, it lies right, right where you're going here. Yeah. It's intertwined with the serotonin 2A receptor. Interesting. Intertwined. So if it's basically touching the serotonin A2 or the serotonin 2A receptor, they form this complex. And what they showed is that psilocybin, magic mushroom, we know you discussed that on a different episode where psilocybin is molecularly very similar to serotonin. Yes. And just for clarification, especially after metabolism, when it turns into psilocin, but yes, very, very close to. Yeah. Yeah. So extremely close. So yeah, they never differentiate, but you you discussed that where it has to actually in the small bowel be converted, which is another whole nuance, which is why some people. But they they both are are 5-HT agonists though. Yeah. So it is a serotonin 2A receptor, uh, 5-HT 2A is what that comes down to. And what they showed is that psilocybin binds to the serotonin 2A and it turns it on. Mm-hmm. That's how we know that psilocybin. In high doses, that's what allows, if you were to think about it, if I have a thought, my neurosynaptic transit goes down and it turns on one neuron and my serotonin is released. Yeah. If I do high doses of psilocybin, it can stimulate multiple neurons, which then results in this flood, which can result in hallucinogenic thoughts and mm-hmm. things like that. But that's why it can turn it all on. Mm-hmm. You open up new channels. Correct. And what they thought is that this has to be tied in together to this addiction. That is really interesting. Oh, it's, it's wild because what they showed is that psilocybin stimulated the serotonin 2A receptor. Yeah. But it woke up. The Mgler 2 levels. So that must be the intertwined thing. It's the intertwined thing. So if you've got the serotonin 2A, which easily does this, I don't know how to do this. I'm doing, if you're listening to this, I'm trying to do some sort of intertwined digital thing, which I think is turning out to some sort of gang sign. We'll just stop that right hey, now. Mike, Mike, I'm trying to get him to show off his crooked finger. All right. So it, it, imagine it that we've got this short antenna because you have a history of addiction mm-hmm. and. Uh, or a history of some sort of a mental aspect, ADHD, autism, all these other things, that Mgler 2 antenna is shrunk. What they showed is when psilocybin binds, yeah. it taps the Mgler 2 and goes, yo, come up, come on up, come on up. Man, it's fascinating, though. And, and, and finish this thought because there's, there's, there's one more caveat to this that I can think of that may not have been addressed in here, but go ahead. So finish. <gasps> no, the thought was basically that. It was shocking to them that they realized that the psilocybin bound not only to the serotonin 2A receptor, but it it pumped up the Mgler 2 antenna. It woke it up so that now the serotonin and the the Mgler 2, mm-hmm. the glutamate antenna are now equal. Yeah. So now it pumped it back up and it corrected the chronic addiction and the relapsing in the animal model that they had. So as all things, they said this evidence shows that further research should go into development of a drug that could potentially affect the Mgler 2. Eh. So do you remember when we were talking about uh, the different psychedelics and we we briefly hit upon where where we took that talk was the economy of neurotransmission. We discussed that. Here's what I think is is actually really, really fascinating about Mother Nature's approach to 
using something like a natural mushroom or something like that to, to do this. Let's just take psilocybin and, and psilocin, for instance. Um, neither of those come at the expense of the serotonin stores that you already have, correct? Because they are simply mimicking serotonin and they are activating receptors. All right. So using that example, just explain really quick. If you do a different drug that depletes it, like ecstasy or MDMA, explain the difference between that and psilocybin. Sure. If you were to use ecstasy or MDMA, what happens is the, uh, the serotonin stores that you have are expelled and are used and are not reuptaked and are reuptaken. I guess reuptaken. I'm not really sure. Reuptaken? Yeah. Reuptooked. Reuptooked. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are such Your mom, the English teacher, is just like cringing this right now. This is the now. episode she hates the most. <laughs> uh, but, but they're not recycled. And so that comes at an expense where without sleep, which is what is primarily required, you, you would need to synthesize a lot more serotonin to get back to the normal state. So uh, what, what, ser- uh, what psilocybin and psilocin do in this instance is they are able to wake up these uh, M- MGLUR2 receptors by this stimulation, and then hopefully the augmentation of your normal serotonin would then begin to put you on this pathway. But I actually thought of another caveat too. When you use an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you're actually leaving more serotonin in the synaptic cleft where the uh, MAO breaks it down and you're perpetually having to replenish some of the serotonin that you're dumping out there because it's not being taken back up either. So it's almost, it's actually not almost, at least in theory, psilocin, or psilocin and psilocybin are potentially a better resource for your brain to not to have to expend more of the economy of neurotransmission because serotonin stores themselves aren't being disrupted. Does this make sense? It does, but let's clarify a little bit what you're doing because you're throwing out words like SSRI and MRO. Yeah. So uh, first of all, let's discuss what are some examples of SSRIs just so that everybody knows. Uh, well, Butrin, different things of this nature. All the drugs, at Prozac, Prozac Paxil, yeah. all those other things. So um, the SSRI is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So Correct. the drug was when the neuron releases the serotonin, it comes out. Right. And then the drug prevents it from going back into the presynapse. Which is what your brain normally wants to do. Which is what it wants to do. Because it wants it wants to that's that whole conservation of energy that you talked about, or the economy of it. So your body sends out the serotonin. If you take a drug like Prozac, then it shuts the gate so that the serotonin's like out in the middle. And then the idea behind that is that that serotonin remains active in the synaptic cleft longer. But it Anything that stays anywhere in the body at some point, if something exists, there's almost always something meant or designed to take it out. And so this thing called an MAO, a monoamine oxidase, is an enzyme which is meant to break down things like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And so the idea here is knowing that SSRIs like Paxil, et cetera, leave serotonin exposed longer in that synaptic cleft where two neurons come together, then those, those serotonin molecules will then be, well, they'll, they'll be digested or, or metabolized or turned away. They won't be reused. And that leaves the presynaptic neuron that was 
expelling the serotonin with the job of replenishing it, everything that doesn't get taken back up. And so my idea here is, I'll let you summarize that, make sure that I'm not going too fast. No, 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 I think you're doing good. So basically the body uses amino acids to produce serotonin when it needs to stimulate the neuron next to it. So it sends it out. Now, when we have a drug, basically it opens the gate, sends the serotonin out, and normally the gate stays open and says, okay, whatever serotonin needs to be used, the body will use it. And then if it doesn't, then, okay, well, come on back in so we can break you back down, get ready for the next serotonin load. Well, an SSRI shuts the gate. So the serotonin sits out here. Mm -hmm. Well, the body understands that that's not right. So the body increases an enzyme called MAO, uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which fascinating, that was one of the first antidepressants that were used. They said, oh, let's break down the enzyme that breaks down serotonin in the, or let's let's block that. So it's called an MAO inhibitor. And as it turns out, there's shit tons of side effects with those. Yeah, those. But that's a, but that's a whole separate discussion. So basically you're exactly, based on your economy of what we have when the serotonin's out there, as the uh, Prozac blocks the gate, doesn't allow it to come back in, eventually the body tries to break it down. Some of it still makes it to the post, the post-synaptic part where it continues to do its job. So it is effective in that regard that people do feel better. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. It, so that's just basically what you just said right there. Yeah. So now getting back to the... It just, it just seems like that nature, which is the mushroom, let's just be clear, nature is the mushroom source that we're talking about in this study. This could probably be essentially just a cleaner way to reawaken these uh, receptors, which... Seem to have have failed people. So, if I'm a, a drug maker, mm-hmm. I would say, is there a way that we could make a drug that didn't use up the body's resources, mm. that didn't create a depletion or a response from the body to increase a breakdown enzyme? Meaning, if you have too much SSRI, you're going to increase your MAO. Is there a way to do this? That would be a perfect drug. Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of talking about. A drug that exists in Mother Nature now. Yeah, that's or a molecule. You can call it what you want. Drug molecule. It's a molecule. Yeah, uh, I, I, and and it's and it safely mimics the serotonin itself. So anyway, short way or long way. I'm sorry to get to a short explanation here on what's happening, and just a caveat on why I think that Mother Nature once again is probably going to trump anything that we synthetically produce. But now, now maybe we know why. And now, and now with the thanks to things like the Hefter Institute, you've got NYU and, and Harvard Med and uh, Johns Hopkins University working on why is it that psychotropics, psychedelics seem to work so well. So we know that alcoholism is a recurrent thing. Now we're talking about the science on how psilocybin affects the serotonin receptor. But now this science, now this particular article looks like you can rebuild the antenna that prevents relapse instead of incarceration, instead of recurrent rehabilitation in patient units, instead of disulfiram, which makes you sick when you do this instead of, all these, and we can get is in. Di- disulfiram antabuse? Yeah, it's antabuse. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The disulfiram is antabuse where sometimes it's, it's required by court of law to do these things. 
oh my gosh, this is so novel and so cool where if you have a family member that is an addict of something, now this is just a small study in alcoholism. What if it affects ADHD? What if it affects other um, addictive type situations? I don't know. Well, uh, and I don't have the study in front of me. I'm totally pulling these numbers out of really bad memory here. Obviously, I have bad memories. We try to remember the gerbil. But... um, Nobody heard the nope. first part of the talk. Yeah, if a- you tuned in now, you have no idea what the hell just happened. Uh, but uh, Dennis McKenna, when we talked to him, part of what they talked about with psilocybin, uh, much like alcohol, was the world's most or best documented smoking cessation program was Hefter Institute, along with Johns Hopkins, on smoking cessation with psilocybin. And if I remember correctly, I could be off by a few percentage points. It's either 89 or 91% of the study subjects remained away from cigarettes from its six months. There's nothing else that has that smoking cessation success. Nothing touches it. Nothing is nothing even close. It. And it's, I don't want to say that it is the same, but it seems like it's the same mechanism. Yeah. And so as we suddenly you demystify molecules like this where people just suddenly, sh- they just become very put off or they're like magic mushrooms. No way. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't describe it as magic, magic mushrooms. Describe it as a molecule that can stimulate the MGLUR2 receptor, yeah. which will actually increase and allow glutamate to get in. If I'm describing a drug, that's pretty badass. And yeah. I can sell the shit out of that drug. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's that study. So now we, we did the first study. We're just eating a, a diet high in mushrooms will help with depression. Now we have the second study, which actually shows that we could potentially help with addiction. And that's just tip of the iceberg, I think. I think it's going to trickle down to other things. Now, the last study that I have here, the third study, is, you know, we know that data is supporting the use of this. But Johns Hopkins is at the forefront of this. Is it the MAPS program? What's the uh, program that? Yeah, that uh, that Cooper was. It, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't guess I realized that Johns Hopkins was associated. with No, I don't yeah. think they are. Okay, I'm just saying okay. that there's different organizations yeah, yeah, maps, looking yeah, at this. Yeah. So there's data supporting the use of psychedelics like psilocybin in large doses to treat PTSD, mm-hmm. anxiety, and depression. And if you look at the study that they're coming out with, it is involved with a heroic dose. Followed by counseling, which is very interesting and unique because it's one dose and they're Mm -hmm. showing sustained response equivalent to antidepressants over a six-month period. So that's looking really good. One of the problems with that as, as a somewhat conservative physician that using the whole heroic dose thing gets a little bit wild because people have been known to have psychotic breakthroughs. People have been known to do different things. And it just seems a little bit not mainstream. So a study just came out, an international study recently published in Scientific Reports, demonstrated that repeated uses of extremely small doses of psilocybin called microdosing mm-hmm. can be equally valuable in those struggling with anxiety and depression. So anecdotally, if you look at Silicon Valley and you look at areas of high productivity entrepreneurs, it's well known. Um, You know, rest his soul, Tony Shea from Delivering Happiness, Zappos. Zappos, He was a big proponent. Tim Ferriss, huge proponent. Um, I'm going to speak out of turn here, but I, I think most like high level execs, 
especially if you're in that world, do some microdosing. And they have found that it has certainly helped. What this particular study, which is interesting, is because microdosing has never really been studied on a level to look at its possible effects on a population-based study. And the reason is, is because you can't study the stuff because it's considered illegal. Yeah. So Johns Hopkins has this unique opportunity to do it, but they had to file this through the NIH, they had to file through IRB and all these other different things. And what they're doing is a protocol set up to look at these heroic doses to get the maximum benefit, which makes total sense. You don't want to do something and have it fail and then have the whole industry shut down, say like it doesn't work. So this particular study that just got published is the largest psychedelic microdosing study which has ever been published. What they looked at is 8,500 people from 75 countries using an anonymous self-reporting system. And what they found is that half were following a microdosing regimen and half were not. So in a very broad or randomized way. They just allowed people to self-report. And what they showed is in comparing the microdosers and non-microdosers, there was a very clear association between microdosing and fewer symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. Now, this is super important because of the high prevalence of these conditions. And certainly right now, it's the highest it's probably been in a really long time with COVID and everything. Now, this study is also the first to systematically examine the practice of stacking. Are you familiar with what stacking is with microdosing? I don't. I don't know what stacking is. All right. So stacking. Uh, Paul Stamets, the world-renowned mycologist who did the Fantastic Fungi Netflix movie. Yeah, Netflix, yeah. Paul Stamets um, is the one that actually came up with the notion that you can stack various items to make the microdosing much more successful. So this particular group of people had already self-taught this, and they showed that those people that combined microdoses of psilocybin with niacin, lion's mane, and cacao, cacao is a complex polyphenol. So here we are circling back to all of this. This is all mother nature using the ingredients to help each other. So those people that were able to stack it, now the, now the stamen stack, which mm-hmm. he has, is lion's mane, niacin, and psilocybin. Microdosing, and they've got different protocols, but essentially it's a few days on and a few days off so that you don't actually develop tolerance to it. Oh, yeah. And what they, what they wanted to describe was the fact that we have this epidemic of mental health issues and the existing treatments Quite honestly, we can all agree they either don't work or they may work a little bit and have their own side effects. So this is an opportunity to look at this. Now, what I found fascinating about this study is that it came out of a group that used something called the Quantified Citizen. Quantified Citizen, which is a mobile health research platform. So this is um, started by some entrepreneurs that wanted to use a platform where it allowed them to do research that can examine the effects and behaviors that are very difficult to study in the lab due to the regulatory challenges. So they set up a mobile platform where people are allowed to voluntarily contribute lifestyle data. They could, they're going to be able to contri- get a lot of data from a lot of different places. This is 75 different countries. And the conclusion was that the growing evidence shows that treating depression with high dose of psilocybin is clearly on the trend, but nobody has discussed these microdosing, yeah. which appears to be equally effective. Wow. Or at least similarly effective. So 
what I'm talking about today is the mushrooms. We have three articles looking at how natural, healthy food um, can help with depression. We're looking at how an amino acid in um, those natural foods appear to play a role that you can only get that you that you well I actually you can get it through other food. We didn't get into the other food sources like red beans and a few other things like that. But the highest concentration is in mushroom Mushrooms, extract. Yeah. And then we have another article that discusses how psilocybin can help with addiction, but it's not in the usual way. There's a whole different antenna that nobody had talked about yet, yeah. which could lead to incredible advances in addiction medicine. Yeah. And then ultimately, we've got this final study that looks at microdosing. And if you're unfamiliar with microdosing, it's, that's a whole separate topic unto itself. And we need to bring an expert on for that, I think. We should probably link back up with Dennis. Yeah. We had Dennis McKenna when we were first, uh, we were <laughs> we at didn't Paleo know how FX. To record. We didn't know how to record or do sound or do any of that stuff. And so we have this incredible podcast that just sounds like shit. And he's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Dennis McKenna is the godfather of psilocybin. But here we have a microdosing study of thousands of people in 75 different countries showing incredibly positive effects. And the side effects are essentially nil. Well, I found this really encouraging. How old is that study, by the way? Oh, like weeks. Okay. If you remember the first time that we were actually exposed to any depth on, and what I say by depth is it was a novel idea, the microdosing, but the first time we ever met anybody who had firsthand knowledge of microdosing and its success or failure was Dennis. And at the time, he even said that he felt like there was plenty of research that needed to be expanded. This sounds certainly like it's been expanded because this didn't exist then. And at the time, he felt like you needed to have, it was almost essential to have the heroic dose in in certain timed intervals to make microdosing work. So this is actually quite encouraging for those who just would rather reside there and give that kind of feedback. So I'm thinking that's great. And he wasn't opposed to the discovery. Yeah, because his research, and I honestly will still agree with him, that I think that when we spoke with Jack Alaka, the PhD, who has incredible research on psychedelics, he's the one that told me, he goes, I believe that microdosing is much more of an antidepressant than it is utilization of the other aspects of psilocybin. So if people are working through a traumatic experience, a PTSD, um, overcoming some hurdles in their life, probably you need to break through and saturate many neurons at the same time with serotonin. But if you're looking to stimulate the serotonin uh, 2A receptor to increase your serotonin levels in a natural way that does not deplete your own serotonin and does not get your body to react and develop more enzymes to get rid of it, like an SSRI, then possibly microdosing is a legitimate way to do this. Yeah, no, I, that, that makes sense too. And I like the way that you that you re uh, you recapped uh, Jack's description because it would make sense to, on why a heroic dose would be. Um, and I like the word heroic dose too. Anyway, but a large dose would be uh, <laughs> would be uh, necessary because your description of waking up the quote unquote the antenna. If everything is dormant and has been for a while, then that's almost what it is that you need, right? I mean, and who knows? I'm sure that we'll get there with research, but at least in theory, it makes sense that you would need this this jolt to bring everything else back to like a reset kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm really interested to see where we go with this level of research, and I, and I'm I love the fact that that the way that you and I've navigated through through this and many other topics, it's not to fill in the blanks. Where we don't know, 
there's so much more to learn here, but it seems like that we've put together some huge pieces that we didn't even have 18 months ago. Oh, I mean, all three articles came out within the last several weeks, just published. That being said, we have to do the caveat that we are we're presenting this from the United States as it stands right now. Um, these psilocybin, technically magic mushrooms, are illegal, so we're not encouraging anybody oh, to do yeah, this. No, don't ever but do I it. love the idea that we're heading down this path that we can offer something. So, more than anything, hope. Yeah. If you're somebody who is possibly battling some depression if you're somebody who's having some side effects if you're doing this please hang in there because it really looks like we're starting to break down some really cool barriers and the fact that cacao is used as a stack we know watch the last episode on coffee where we talked about polyphenols we know that anandamide plays a role so cbd's playing i just feel like it's so exciting that we are are in the mix of this with this podcast that we're showing that Mother Nature knows her shit. Yeah, she definitely does. And and you know what? In the show notes, we'll put some references in there. But beyond what we can offer in this realm on the latest information, check out the Hefter Institute. H-E-F-F-T-E-R is Hefter Institute as well as MAPS. You brought up MAPS. Yeah, Those are great resources for how to find some of the latest information here. We're really just presenting it to you as... Well, honestly, Ken is. Ken found it, um, and but he's bringing it here so that you're aware that it exists. But man, is you can really dig very, very deep. Uh, it's just super exciting times, and I just like the, I like the science. I like the the effort that these scientists are going through to not play the norm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm really di- uh, loving this whole quantified citizen thing, where it sounds like just some entrepreneurs that said <laughs> we need to find a way that people can do this, so we don't have to deal with bureaucracy yeah no I, I like it too and take it for what you want I mean who knows you know like a, a, uh, an institution that does randomized placebo controlled trials would look at that and be like that's no that's too wild it's not controlled enough it is what it is oh, but I, no, I, we I get disagree. it you know? I, I think I, I laugh because it's almost like you're using the system against itself you're able to say oh no no, no we're, we're fine we're doing it this way so I think it's actually I think it's awesome it's novel and it's it's a safe approach to do something that probably has just been Honestly, it's been ignored. It's just been completely ignored. Yeah, I'm, and we have, I as a gastroenterologist, I said it before, the brain gut access is there. I have so many patients that suffer from depression and anxiety, and if we can heal their gut, sometimes the brain works. And if I, I see the future of this, I see in within ten years using psilocybin using mdma using ketamine using these things that have a stigma but now once you are able to show the molecular aspect of it there's no difference between that and the molecular aspect of an arrhythmia drug for cardiology where in other words once you explain it in a 1a trial and you sit there and show it this is how it works now we can say well this is how this works and it's a mother nature and our bodies are already adapted to use it. Yeah. Anything that's already out there as a food source, our bodies can use it. So totally agree. That's an awesome show. Well, you know, it's, it's mushroom time and you know, I appreciate you, uh, um, almost remembering that, that great day when you saved that gerbil's life. But I mean, it sounds like I need to hang out with quantified citizen and see if I can get my memory back. That's exactly it. So we, uh, 
once again, please listen to this kind of stuff. We try and offer maybe some not typical traditional medicine, but we always want to base it on science. We want to have a little bit of humor with it, so take everything with a grain of salt. And if you like this, please share it with anybody. Uh, we want to try and grow the audience here. We want to try and get this out. We have a lot of guests that are contacting us that have a lot to offer. If you have a topic that – how do they reach us, by the way? Go to kbmdhealth.com or go to gutcheckproject.com. They both will take you to the middle, and you can leave us a message. Uh, there There should be a little bitty box, and just shoot us an email. Yeah, give us, give us some topics. Give us some ideas. Share it. Obviously, the usual stuff, like, just so that we can um, start growing this and really trying to help people. That's our bottom line. That's it. We're just trying to help people. That's all there is. I think that's it for episode 66, man. Awesome. Episode 66. Take care, everyone, and eat your mushrooms. Like and share. We'll see y'all soon. Thank you.